Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on TWIP is a photographer and author, special guest co-host Joseph Lenashki, and guest Trey Ratcliffe reveals his amazing stuck-in-motion technique. All that and more coming your way next on episode number 115 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. We've got a pretty interesting show lined up for you guys today. Um, some of the usual suspects, myself and Ron Brinkman, but a couple of uh, strangers to the show, at least uh, to being on this side of the mic or the camera. Um, so today in the lineup, we've got myself a, and uh, Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hey, how are we doing? We're doing awesome. Um, we've got Mr. Joseph Lenashki coming to us from Pasadena, California. Hey, Joseph. Good morning. And that's Trey. And there you go. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We had him swear. Good morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joseph does not wear glasses. So. <laughs> and as we gave you a sneak peek of uh, uh, Mr. Trey Ratcliffe, the uh, proprietor of StuckInCustoms.com, has joined us today, not only as a co-host, but also as a guest to uh, make a special reveal to not only his audience, but to this week in photography audience about some special stuff. Hey, Trey. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty good. You know, um, I have been watching your stuck in motion thing, you know, in your your sort of gradual reveal and teasing people about how you got you did that special effect. And I am uh, I got to say, I'm one of the people that's excited to see how you're how you pulled that off. I've got my own cool. theories. And I know Joseph and Ron, who are kind of visual effects experts, probably know how you did the effect. But uh, I do not because I'm stuck in motion. <laughs> or stuck, right, stuck cool. in stills um so hey before we uh get started i want to give a uh, quick shout out to our sponsor we're our sponsors what twip is brought to you by squarespace.com they're a fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog if you like a free trial or 10 percent off of your new account head over to squarespace.com forward slash twip and enter the offer code TWIP. And this podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. If you'd like a free audiobook of your choice, head over to audiblepodcast.com forward slash TWIP. All right, guys, into the news. First up, uh, Canon has introduced a firmware update for the brand new EOS 7D that's supposed to correct some ghosting phenomena in there. Uh, now, who on the show has a 7D? I don't, I don't think anyone has a 7D. You, any of you guys are, are, have that brand new camera yet? Nope. Nope. No. Thinking about it. 
you're you're you <laughs> run <laughs> you, uh, come on i'm not nearly uh spending nearly as much time as uh, alex spent trying to decide on this next camera i know but you know uh, alex alex sat on the fence for what 18 months before he decided what camera to buy now <laughs> he's now he's buying cameras by the bushel <laughs> somehow yeah, this, the 70s almost there for me but i'm not totally convinced so I'll, what, I'll what's holding you back so uh, I wish they would have improved the the low light performance. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. They went one direction. They went more megapixels instead of uh, better low light. So that's it. That's the only thing holding you back. Yep. You yeah. If it, if do you, it was, are you a video? Uh, uh, not that I'm going into video or anything, but do you care about that? <laughs> I I not right now. Uh, or okay. more specifically, I wouldn't buy a camera just to have a camera with video on it so much as I would wait until I was going to shoot something specifically that I needed a camera for and then I'd go buy it if I needed it or rented it depending on how big the project was. Yeah, totally. Joseph, uh, but, Joseph, what are you shooting with right now? Uh, the 5D Mark II if I'm doing any video work and the 1DS Mark III is my primary camera. Oh, nice. And uh, so have you have you looked at the 7D at all and are you lusting after it? No, not at all. Um, the fact that it's crop frame sensor doesn't uh, it makes it really not that interesting to me. The only thing that's interesting about it is that it does true 2398 video, um, but you know at least Canon announced that a firmware update for the 5D2 would be coming out with that. Mm-hmm. Of course, they said the first half of 2010, so that's a little annoying. Um, I tend to think it's just so they get more people to buy 70s, but I don't need it, need it, so I can hold out. And if I really need the 24, then I can always rent one. Yeah. Now, um, uh, Mr. Ratcliffe, you're brand new to the show. Again, welcome. What uh, what are you shooting with? I'm all Nikon. And to be honest with you, I have trouble keeping up with Nikon. And I hear all these, you know, and I hear all the model numbers all the time for the Canons, although I can't, I can't tell a lick of difference between any of them. I'm sure they're great, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I totally. Now, I, I would assume, based on some of the things that you're going to reveal on the show today, that... Uh, you have been playing with more than just the still features of the cameras, and you're you're shooting lots of multimedia stuff, correct? Yeah, I still really get the biggest charge out of still photography. I feel like that's kind of my bread and butter. But mm-hmm. I love experimenting with the video. There's there's so much available experimentation out there now that this is available to the the common man. I think we're going to see some amazing stuff out there. Yeah, totally. And while while I have you on the hot seat, Trey. Um, <laughs> now, you know, this is, this is a wonderful opportunity because, uh, Trey, uh, Ron and, and Joseph, if you don't know, Trey has sort of hung his hat on, um, high dynamic range photography and it's done some amazing stuff. You can just go to his blog at stuckincustoms.com and, and scroll through it and just see that he's the guy that's sort of pushing the envelope on what can be done with that technique. So, uh, Trey, do you want to, and there's been, we've talked about it on the show a lot about how, you know, high dynamic range seems to be a polarizing topic. Either people love it or they hate it. You know, can you just sort of explain just, you know, quickly, where do you come in? I know you don't hate it, but you know, what's your philosophy behind (laughs) HDR and you know, the, the argument against, you know, some people say, you know, you shouldn't be doing it because it looks too processed. Well, look, photography is an art form and you can take it in whatever direction you want to. I think that there's a big group of people out there that do see the world in a high dynamic way. And the way that we store these memories is very saturated, very romantic, and it's very real to us. So that when we actually see these HDR photos, 
as long as they're not too overdone or too, you know, Austin drugged out, then, you know, they really resonate deeply with us on a very deep level. So by adjusting these light levels and getting them to equate to what a lot of us remember in our mind's eye, it's very satisfying on, on a different sort of level. And I think it's different. It's certainly controversial. That's fine. You know, you don't have to do something that satisfies 100% of the people all the time. I think then that's sort of a, a bad goal for you. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I tend to agree with you totally. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, HDR is a technique. It is not it's it's not photography, right? It's just it's it's just another way of wielding the the power that we have in this whole digital age. Now, uh, Joseph, where do you fall on that? I know you're you may be a little bit of a purist in terms of <laughs> photography. So, where do you fall on the whole uh, manipulation and 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 techniques as tools argument? Well, I think Trey hit it when he said it's just an art form, like anything else. It's just another way to create an image, to express an image, to you know express what you've seen. Um, I've played with it very, very little. I don't have a huge interest in doing it myself, but I've followed Trey's work. I've seen the, the website many times. Um, absolutely some stunning, stunning images on there. And oh, unfortunately, thanks. I think nice a lot of people, <laughs> absolutely, I think that a lot of people do take it way, way too far, right? Like, um, you know, like when laser printers and PageMaker first came out, just because you had access to 120 fonts didn't mean, didn't mean uh, you needed to put them on every single document you made, you know, yeah. all, all 120 of them. And some people just take it way too far and go ridiculous. But I think Trey's done a really good job of finding, uh, finding that kind of fine line and, and doing some really beautiful, stunning work. So uh, absolutely nothing against it. I just yeah. have, you know, once people do it ridiculously, that's when I kind of cringe. <laughs> yeah. But that can be said about absolutely any art form in the world. Totally. Totally, and Ron, where do where do you fall on it? Are you uh, are you a big fan of HDR? Or are you uh, are you on the it's a it's an art form <laughs> side of the fence? Uh, I think I've said it before. I don't I don't like using the term HDR to refer to a look because HDR is really a technology. We're just capturing extra dynamic range, and then that that look that post process look where you tend to bring areas of bright highlights and areas of deep shadow more into neutral ranges. Uh, is just a specific type of color correction. You can get that same look a lot of times just shooting a single raw file and using uh, post-processing tools, most notably like the highlights and, and shadows recovery that you can you have. And I think both Lightroom and definitely in Aperture, you can crank those up. You can bring your you know blown-out skies back down into nice, deep, satisfying clouds and bring your shadows up to show details. And then you, you can effectively get that exact same sort of HDR look uh, just on a single frame. So I, I, I just like to make the distinction between what is the technology you're using to capture higher dynamic range and then some choices you make in post-processing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, now Trey, there's been some, some rumors, and I think there are some camera bodies out there right now that actually shoot the the whole you know high dynamic range imagery within the camera, meaning they shoot, they automatically bracket or record three uh, different exposures and combine them in the camera to give you with one click that exposure. Have you, have you heard of those? Yeah, I've heard of those. And I think it's going to be a long time before they do uh, a good job of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've taken forever, uh, to write and rewrite and iterate on this HDR tutorial I have on the site. And it's taken so long to figure out the right way to make an HDR that looks realistic is believable and satisfying on many levels that there's no way that the AI inside of a computer can figure this out. Photomatics is one of the best tools out there for doing this, and it still doesn't do that good of a job. 
It has trouble detecting the difference between daytime and nighttime and indoor and outdoor. And commonly, you'll see these gray skies. You'll see halo effects. You'll see all these just horrible things that the computer inside the camera is trying to decide what to do. And it just doesn't know because it's not there. It doesn't have this human filter we have to know what looks real and what doesn't look real. So I think it's going to be quite a while before we see anything in camera that's satisfactory. And, and speaking of what looks real and what doesn't look real, uh, you know, also on the show, we've we've talked a lot about uh, just where the line is between between what how far you should push a photograph. And there's been, you know, controversy around, you know, editing models too much and making them look too unrealistic or too thin or, you know, where where do you draw that line? So in in the world of the stuff that you put together, Trey. Where do where do you draw the line? You're, do you consider yourself the an artist first and foremost, and you're just you're you're pushing paint around on the screen, or are you trying to represent reality or hyper reality? I think my HDR work is is pretty realistic, and especially uh, when you compare it to a lot of the really bad stuff that's out there. And my old stuff was really bad too back in the day. Now, I think everyone goes through this process where they get better at it over time. And, uh, you know, all the light that you see in my HDRs is light that's actually there. I don't paint on top of it. And the more you do HDR, the more you really start to appreciate the subtle light levels and the colors that are around us all the time. So it does change the way you look at the world, and that changes your photography, and these things kind of cycle together over time. So I find it artistic. I find it realistic. But then again, that's kind of the way my mind works, and I think that's the way a lot of people's minds work. Yeah, absolutely. And and Joseph, um, you know, I know your stuff is is you know I've seen your work, which is brilliant. Done a lot of uh, envious photography, I would call it enviable photography, uh, shooting some superstars and all kinds of stuff. Um, so where. You know, I know Trey probably, whenever he goes out traveling around the world, he's got a pair of uh, or tripods with him, definitely. Very heavy tripods, I'm sure, to get those, uh, those exposures locked in right. What, do you, what are you typically traveling with, Joseph, when you're doing, say, concert photography? Oh, gosh. If I'm doing a big shoot like that, then I'm going to have uh, a couple of cases full of gear, a Pelican and a probably big backpack full of gear, and I pretty much will bring everything <laughs> yeah um you know i'll travel with three bodies um the 1ds the 5d mark ii and i have an old 5d mark one that i'll use um i'll often mount that places like uh, on a drum rig or something like that somewhere where i can't get to during the show or during the event set that up on an auto trigger and i basically would bring every lens that i've got um i'm probably carrying about 10 lenses with me to 10 lenses with me just to you never know what you're going to encounter uh what the situation is going to be like what the venue is going to be like and then uh, I've, I've got to schlep a lot of that gear around while I'm shooting. So there's a considerable amount of stuff that I have strapped onto me between my my photo shooting pants that uh, I mean you guys were poking fun at a couple of, <laughs> a year or so ago. <laughs> hey man, those things are great. Uh, we got to bring those back. We definitely uh, have to bring those. World. <laughs> hey, the built-in knee pads are the best thing ever. Believe me, you gotta you gotta drop to your knees repeatedly on a hard concrete floor, and God knows what's on that ground that you're kneeling on, uh, it's good to have a little protection down there. 
<laughs> Joseph, I think I think you need to do you need to revive that blog post that you wrote or your blog's at jillsoflanaski.com, right? You should, you need to revive that so people can actually see what we're talking about. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll, I'll bring it up to the top. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. And if you can't spell Joseph's last name, we're uh, just copy it down from what's on the screen right now. And if you're listening, if you're listening to us uh, in the in the podcast feed, just head over to the show notes on twitblog.com and we'll link over to this stuff. Now, and nobody uh, can ever find it by by spelling it, so that's why my uh, blog is actually different. Name that's the Confessions of a Travel Junkie. People can find that. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. Confessions of a Travel Junkie dot com. Right there you go. Now, what were you saying? I, I, were saying I just want to make the point that um, you know, talking about uh, this bracketed exposure shooting, it's it's something that you know pretty much is next to impossible to do in a scenario like Joseph's in, where you you know you've got people on stage moving around, and and uh, you know you, the only way you're going to get that sort of high dynamic range uh, look in a scenario like that is is as cameras get better to capture more of it and then you can do post processing on it yeah 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 i mean i think we're we're at the the, the beginning of all this stuff we've got a long way to go um RC Concepcion from uh, LayersTV.com just chimed in over Twitter. He says HDR is what infrared was, which was what selective color was, which is what hand tinting was. What do you say to that, Trey? Well, that's uh, <laughs> quite a prophetic <laughs> statement there by old RC. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here, so <laughs> it's. Uh, you know, it is really just a, a really fun tool set. However, if you go look at trends, you know, I think you can say with ontological certainty that HDR is not a fad. You can go to Google Insights and look at some of these other things, and you see how they go up and down over time. Now, HDR is just headed in one direction. And one of the really cool things about it is when it's so easy to get started in HDR. Um, I've reduced it to a very simple kind of uh, procedure, and there's many great HDR tutorials out there. But anyone can do it, and when you first get into it and you look at the photo, you are shocked at what you just did, and you call over your, your friends and family and you have them look at it. And frankly, and this is sort of a dirty secret of HDR, is even if you're not that good at it, you're so surprised and happy with the result. And you get so many endorphins going and other people around you, they actually, the common person almost doesn't know the difference between a bad HDR and a good one. They might learn over time, but your family gets so excited, your friends get so excited, that gives you enough juice to keep iterating on it to get better over time. So it's not a fad. This is something that's very real. People get excited about it, and it adds a lot to their photography. Excellent. And Trey, where's that where's that tutorial on your site, by the way, before we, we move on? Where you said you said you have a HDR tutorial on your website. Where where is it? Yeah, it's linked right there on the site, uh, in the top right. Or you can go to stuckincustoms.com slash HDR dash tutorial. Okay. Excellent. And how much does that cost? It's free. All right. <laughs> Just double check. <laughs> <laughs> we like free on this week in photography. You bet. Uh, this week in photography, uh, Ron, Ron, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say, I don't think using it, the term a fad for HDR is, is necessarily the right term because cameras are going to get more and more dynamic range. What's going to go away, I think, is the sense of shooting bracketed exposures. What I hope is going to go away is the sense of shooting bracketed exposures because uh, that's just You're right, Ron. Uh, I think painful. as soon as we get a bunch of stops in the camera that we're going to be in uh, in really good shape. If we go from plus four to minus four in a single raw, that is the Valhalla of a capture, and then we can stop with this bracketed nonsense. Exactly, and, and the, you know there there are cameras that do that now, and uh, you're you're going to see it get it, make its way into consumer level stuff sooner or later. 
Yeah, sooner, hopefully. Yeah. All right, let's move away from that stuff and, and jump into something that I know that all of you are going to have uh, an opinion on. Um, this is about Google. So the, the judge in the Google Book settlement case says that photographers are not authors. <laughs> so the judge, uh, in this case, he denied an attempt by photographers to become part of the settlement. And in the decision, Judge Denny Chin basically ruled that photographers are not authors and that the settlement covers only word-based material with the exception of illustrations in children's books. So let's just take that, let's just remove that one statement and say, you know, a judge has decreed that photographers are not authors. What Joseph, what do you, where do you go on that? What do you, what do you say to that? Well, actually, before we do that, can you uh, summarize what this settlement's about for those of us that don't know anything about it? <laughs> yes, I can. So uh, essentially, there's a and Ron, you may know more about this than I do because you uh, you're probably more deep into it. Uh, <laughs> you trying to throw it off to me? No, but I'm I'm gonna update. I'm I'm looking at the page right now because I want to give it out correctly. Um, so let's see. Da, 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 da. So essentially, Google is attempting to make available all the books on the planet that are able to be made available through Google so that you can read them through Google Books. Um, but of course, they hit a lot of resistance to that from everybody from traditional publishers to authors. Uh, there's lots of little nuances to to doing something like that. It's not just as simple as, okay, the books that are not copywritten, just suck them up in there. Or in the books that are, maybe there's loopholes so they can get sucked up into the Google sort of mesh. Um, but it's been in court, obviously. And this is one of the latest things that popped out of that. So what they're saying is, you know, the uh, the book settlement. So they're, they're trying to make a settlement in this. And they're just saying that the uh, that we as photographers aren't applicable to this settlement, meaning photographers are not the authors that they're referring to in the settlement. So my, my question to you, Joseph, is do you think, are you an author or are you a photographer? And should you, should you be considered one or the other? Um, well, I wouldn't consider myself an author by creating photos. I mean, I do write things as well. And in that case, I'm wearing my author hat, I suppose. But as a photographer, I think you're a photographer. But What's interesting about this is the wording. I don't know why it has anything to do with being an author. It really has to do with copyright holder. Yeah. And as the photographer, I own the copyright. So unless I've sold that copyright to the publisher, then as a photographer, I should be entitled to whatever the settlement's about. I mean, again, I don't know anything about this case, but in typical legal fashion, if the wording of it is very specific to settlement is applied to authors, full stop, then no, I guess I'm not an author and I guess I'm not entitled to it. But that would tell me that something was wrong with the way the case was handled because, you know, copyright holders, if it's about copyright infringement, then everybody who has a copyright stake in that uh, in that case or in that book or whatever it may be should be compensated, should be considered in this. Sure. And Ron Brinkman, you're an author. You have a book out, at least one book out. You have two books out right now, I think. And you're a photographer. Which uh, how do you fall on this? Uh, a couple of points here. I think. Um First of all, it, it seems kind of inconsistent to call out illustrations as being different than photographs. Um, you know, so from that perspective, it feels like it's it's kind of an arbitrary line that the judge is drawing. Uh, you know, illustrations, any sort of visual material here is really the thing in question. Uh, so I'm not quite sure how you can make that distinction. I, I think that generally, you know, when a book is published, though, the permission to use the photos has been included in the ownership of the work and so the, the copyright uh, is owned by either the author or more typically the publisher for the material that's in the book so presumably 
it's an all or nothing kind of thing in most cases where the uh, you know the book is either copywritten or not, and the owner of that copyright is the person that put it together. And it may not be the author anyway. It's it's like I said, quite often it's the publisher. You know, my publisher owns the rights to my book. Uh, I don't. So if Google was to scan it in and start offering it on the web, it's, it's between my publisher and, and Google, really, not me. So I, there's obviously all kinds of edge cases in a scenario like this. Uh, I think the the specific ruling here, the judge just said, you know, there's nothing saying that the photographers can't file a separate lawsuit, but uh, he was just sort of making a specific case, you know, in this one. I don't think it's a consistent case, but that's sort of what he was saying. Yeah. Okay. And Mr. It's, it's interesting because if you had, if you do include the photography as part of that, and if you, let's say that you licensed a photo from a stockhouse, you know, from Getty or something, you licensed that photo for the use of publishing in your book, and now Google's doing this, which is probably outside of the right of the agreement that you had with Getty for using that photograph, then it seems Getty would be the one coming after it saying, hey, wait a minute, you're not licensed to do that with my, uh, with those photographs. Totally true. And, you know, a lot of times, like images in my book, uh, my most, most recent book has, I don't know, a couple dozen case studies from different movies. And, you know, I got permission to use those images uh, for the book. Uh, and in some cases, uh, permission to only use the images for this edition of the book. So there becomes a question of if Google republishes it, is that like reprinting it or is that like doing a new edition? Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's going to be a mess. And I don't think there's, there's never going to be a definitive answer because – you know, somebody like Disney is going to go back and say, you know what, we are going to go fight this one in court. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And, and Trey, where do, you, where do you fall on the whole argument? Well, it, you know, the government isn't in the habit of doing things well. So I don't expect <laughs> their wild hair <laughs> agents in the courts to start anytime soon. Uh, you know, the, cr- creative people need to be protected by the government and – Insofar as uh, rights get uh, trampled upon, uh, we need to do what we can to make it a, a, a better place. And I think that these judges just, uh, they don't get it. They're, they're out of touch. And if they were really creative people, they wouldn't be judges in the first place. All right. Enough said. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to Toyota. They've apologized. Toyota has apologized for using Flickr photos in an SUV ad. So Toyota USA has removed a, f- a photo feature from one of its websites and apologized to all Flickr photographers who images, whose images appeared in the site without pr- their permission. Uh, they used over 40 Flickr images in a forerunner four, website and uh, compiled them into three galleries. Now, Trey, has this ever happened to you with one of your images? I know you have some, some uh, pretty interesting ways of how you are licensing your images from your site. So if you could talk about that a little bit and how this, this apology from Toyota might affect you. Right. That's a good question. So I'm all Creative Commons. I think Creative Commons is the future, and it is the best way to get your images spread all over creation. And that's extremely important when it comes to Google searches uh, in bringing SEO power back to your uh, website, in building trust, um, in building reputation. You, you pretty much have to go Creative Commons. If you don't, you're going to keep all your photos in a little walled garden and safe and protected. Now, what happens is you end up getting people stealing it on occasion. But I find that very rarely do legitimate companies steal my photos. Mm-hmm. Whenever it happens, it becomes this big deal like Toyota. And, of course, they should not just apologize, but they should compensate. 
you cannot use uh, my photos, for example, in any kind of commercial application to make money for it. You have to contact us, and then we'll work out a deal with you. And they should have contacted each of those individual Flickr people to work out deals with them or go through Getty or whoever owned the rights to the photos. Yeah. Uh, but I find that really it's not too much of a problem to share my stuff out there openly. Hardly anybody ever steals it. Now, um, you know, we're looking at your site right now on the screen, and the images that you have on there are larger than that you'd find on most other photography-related uh, websites. And I also noticed that your the photos that I'm looking at here don't have a watermark or anything on there. Now, is that part of your whole strategy using Creative Commons to get the, the images out there and proliferated around the planet and then uh, then getting revenue from them? Or what's your mindset behind that? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I do think differently about this stuff. And every day I upload a new photo and it's much bigger than that. I upload the one that's, you know, 6,000 pixels across. You can click oh. through to the Flickr to get the full thing. And so people put these on their desktops, they put them on their blogs, uh, they just have fun with them. They recreate them, they paint them, and that is a great way to get your stuff out there. I don't watermark it because I think watermarks are ugly and they take away from the photo. When I look at a photo with a watermark, all I can think about is that god dang watermark that's staring me in the <laughs> eyes. I can't even think about the photo. It just bothers me. Yeah. I, maybe that's just me. Now, you don't need to use watermarks. There's this great tool called TinEye. If you just Google TinEye, you can go there and point it to a URL of one of your own photos or upload a photo, and it will show you everywhere on the Internet that's using your photo. I don't know how it works. It's remarkable. But TinEye and tools like that that intelligently scour the web and look for similar images, that's the way to track down who is using your stuff out there. Wow. So and you've had success using TinEye, meaning, you know, you, you can, what does it do? Does it give you a map and it shows you where everything's being used? Or does it just give you a list of, hey, we found an image that we think is yours and a link and you can click through to verify? That's how it works. It's basically, it gives you sort of Google search results uh, down, down the right-hand side. It shows uh, site after site after site all over the net that's using your image. And then you go there and see if it's a blog or you see if it's a commercial entity that's actually using your image to make money from it. Excellent. Wow. All right. 10i.com. Definitely check it out. We've uh, we've talked about them briefly on the show uh, several months ago, I think. Um, but they were I think they were still pretty new, still just getting started. I would assume that their their algorithm and their database is much, much larger now. So if you haven't checked them out lately, definitely head over to 10i.com to yeah, the, uh, the, check them out. The big thing that 10i is missing is sort of a a service that sort of uh, allows you to more easily just check all of your photos against the web. The problem right now is you sort of submit an individual photo and say, go check on this one, and then you do it again and again, and it can get kind of kind of tedious, uh, obviously, or if you think there is some infraction. But I've talked to the guys that uh, over there, and it's some very cool technology, and it's really amazing how smart it is about um, finding variations on the photos. So it can find stuff if you somebody's taken one of your photos and just cropped a section out of it, uh, or rotated it or done uh, a significant color correction on it. It's still pretty good about finding uh, the match from back to your original photo. Uh, anybody that's got a lot of work out there on the web should probably occasionally pop in, use that, search for some of their, their better selling or more popular photos and just see where they've propagated to. Excellent. All right. Definitely have to check that out. And again, we'll link to that in the show notes uh, so you don't have to go there now. 
Um, another quick uh, shout out to one of our sponsors, Squarespace.com. Um, they've got a brand new Squarespace iPhone application that they just released. So if you're a Squarespace user or an iPhoneaholic, download it and go get your free Squarespace.com site and uh, use it. Squarespace.com, if you don't already know, um, is a quick and easy way to build, host, and manage your website. They've got an easy-to-use UI for creating and managing a website or blog, and it's optimized for both beginners and those folks that call themselves CSS experts, like Joseph. And uh, <laughs> they've got hundreds hundreds of design templates to choose from that are all customizable. Again, if you'd like a free trial, head over to squarespace.com forward slash twip. Um, you don't need a credit card. Just uh, try it out. Build your website. Then if you decide that you want to use the service, you'll get 10% off of the subscription fee when you use the offer code TWIP. Now, Joseph, your website is built using squarespace.com, correct? My blog is, yes. Your blog is. And how, how has that experience been for you? It's been really good. And actually, it's kind of funny that the timing here is, is perfect. Um, so I've, I was building it. I built my site on there probably nine months ago or so. And I really enjoyed it. Really uh, found it very flexible, very powerful. I can do anything I want with it. And I was trying to add a page to it last night, and I accidentally deleted my entire uh, the the column, one of the column bars, one of the uh, the bars down the right side, which had I think five different widgets built into it. And just one click, and it deleted it. I was very tired. I wasn't paying close attention, and I kind of panicked. So I shot an email to their support, which is a twenty four seven tech support. And within 20 minutes, they emailed me back and said, hey, don't worry about it. There's a, uh, there's a link where you go to to recover anything that you've deleted, and it's just there waiting for you to click recover. I didn't know that was there. Clicked on through. Sure enough, there's all the pieces that I deleted. Two clicks later, and I had everything back. And wow. I could not believe it. It was like just absolutely saved my bacon. And I thought, that's great. You know, here I've gone and deleted half of my blog, and I'm about to uh, go on Twip the next day and expect a little extra traffic. So that was quite a relief. So major props to Squarespace just for that right there. Very cool. The recovery. Awesome. All right. So again, squarespace.com, use the offer code TWIP to get 10% off. And let's uh, get a, a quick look at our current poll that we're running. And we asked folks or the Twippers, what is your post-processing application of preference? And the results were at the very top, Lightroom at 39%, 267 people voted on that one. Right behind it is Aperture at 21%, 145 votes. And then way down below that, strangely, it's 17 votes is bridge 2% of the folks said bridge was their application of choice um, iPhoto 5% 32 votes capture NX again 2% neck and neck with bridge and Photoshop including elements 13% or 91 votes said they use Photoshop as their post-processing application of choice and some combination of all the above was 14% which is that would be me uh, 95% and other whoever whatever that means some other strange app that's not in this list uh 3% 24 votes it's out of 687 twippers that bothered to uh, respond to this poll so now you know the next poll we're still working it out so we will uh, we'll get that posted to twiplog.com as soon as we get that up but thanks to all the people who participated in that that was very illuminating no pun intended on the lightroom thing um now Normally at this point in the show, I I do a little intro and we drop it off to a recorded guest segment uh, from guests that I've uh, previously recorded throughout my travels around talking to photographers. But this time we're lucky enough to have the guest live and you've heard him already. He's been hosting with us. 
Trey Radcliffe. So Trey has some interesting and breaking news that he's going to reveal <laughs> on this week in photography right now to only the TWIP audience that's listening. So if you're listening to the podcast feed, this has already been revealed on Monday. But uh, Trey, what? Uh, give us some background on this technique that you developed before you reveal it. Okay. Well, first I should say that I don't know if I've developed or invented anything new. Um, and if you look at the original uh, uh, post that I did with this video thing, one of the commenters got it exactly right in that what we can do now is take this technology and democratize it so that everyone can do it. Normally, to accomplish these sorts of video techniques, um, you had to have tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, uh, movie sets, a crew, so on and so forth. So it's not very approachable to the everyday uh, guy or gal. Uh, and this makes it like that. Okay. So reveal it. I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of my chair waiting to hear what this... So let's let you know. I think we can go to the website now. And for the folks that are viewing this, we're going we're gonna to try to go to that to that video. You're not going to be able to hear the audio, but you'll be able to see and just get a glimpse into what's going on. And I'll just sort of talk about it for the folks that are listening to audio only. Um, so right now we're playing a video from Trey Ratcliffe's Stuck in Customs website. And um, essentially what the technique looks like, I'm going to try to describe this in audio as best I can. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to let Trey, why don't you describe it since it's your technique? Why don't you describe okay. what you're seeing on the screen? All right. I'm sure this is going to come off a little choppy because, you know, it should be played at 30 frames per second. And sure. It's going a little slow over the, over the web. Um, but it is something between photography and video. Uh, we didn't really have a very good name for it. And, uh, um, you know, I purposely didn't say how to do it because what I really wanted to do is I wanted people to guess and experiment. Um, I knew I was going to, you know, tell everyone how to do it eventually, but I think that the, um, uh, the practice of experimenting and guessing is, is not, uh, present enough in people's minds. I think photographers too often look for a quick how to, or a quick guide on how to get something done rather than guessing and experimenting. And I think the best things in photography, and it's like the best things in life, there is no guide for necessarily. So it's good to become comfortable with this of not knowing what's going on because sometimes the process of experimenting is, is better than just immediately finding the answer. But with that, I'll go ahead and give you the exact answer. Okay. All right. Go uh, for it. So it's 50% hardware and 50% software. Uh, and if I go through fat, too fast through this, I have everything laid out on the website, uh, stuckincustoms.com slash stuckinmotion, stuckinmotion, just all run together like that. Now, the hardware is this really cool uh, kind of gadgety camera that came out earlier this year that kind of came and went with the news like a, a ship passing in the night. Um, it is, uh, it's really cool though. It is a Casio EX F1. Mm -hmm. Now it's a regular camera and a video camera, but it's got these three high speed modes, uh, 300 frames per second, 600 frames per second, and 1200 frames per second. Um, all of this is shot at 300 frames per second. And of course it's very hard to see here through the, uh, little web thing I'm watching because it's, it's, it's coming off pretty choppy, uh, but it's smooth when you see it in, in person. In fact, it's silky smooth. It's, it's wonderful to watch. And um, uh, the way you use the technique, which is the other 50%, is like this. 
Uh, there's basically four things to keep in mind. Um, these are not step-by-step -step things, but they're all pretty important. Um, and I think videographers may know a lot of these, although the, there are some very counterintuitive things that I think uh, um, uh, might not first jump to the forefront. The first thing is that you should shoot with the camera and move it 10 times as fast as you think you need to when you pan it. So we've all seen people use video cameras and do this very smooth panning around the subject, this silky smooth pan. Well, the counterintuitive thing is that you don't do that. You move the camera 10 times as fast as you think you need to. Now, you'll look like a, a damned fool out there doing this. But when you take the 300 frames per second, which is 10 times slower than reality, and you combine that with a camera that's moving 10 times as fast, you get this wonderful hinterland in between that really feels good when you watch it. So that method, uh, combined with uh, these other points, they work in concert together. The, the second point is you should try to have uh, two planes of independent motion with the camera lens acting as the third plane of motion. Now, why is that interesting? Well, you know, we're looking at a 2D screen and we're used to looking at 2D photos and our brain likes to map uh, in 3D space where everything is. And normally in a photo, we do that by looking at relative size and using experience. But the brain actually prefers to use parallax. So when you get these uh, uh, independent planes of motion, uh, your brain can latch on to where things are in Z space. And it's just very satisfying to your brain. It, it, you get happy seeing it. So it's very, very nice. You're doing your brain a big favor by uh, letting it see where things are in this 3D space. The third thing is, is to shoot uh, organic things like uh, people or animals or water or things that have uh, Newtonian expectations. Because when you try to shoot something else, uh, like, a, like a car, right, um, and you watch it back, it just looks like it's moving slow. It's not that interesting. It's not appealing to you. The brain really latches on to organic things and the way something's supposed to move. And really... You know, we kind of live in this world of, uh, of watching uh, video um, over the web. And uh, uh, you miss some of those micro-emotions that really are on people's faces when you're there in person. And this gives you a chance to really appreciate those things that you can appreciate when you're there. Uh, the fourth thing, and this is sort of a limitation of the camera, this particular hardware, it is to shoot in bright light because this camera does not do well in low light. Um, the only other limitation of this camera, which I don't feel like is a limitation, but I think some real HD nerds out there might think is a limitation, and that is that it, it shoots about 640 by 480, so it doesn't do high def. Um, however, my argument is that is just fine because 95% of video nowadays, frankly, is consumed over the web through a little uh, YouTube or Vimeo type window. And you can create something perfectly artistic and just very, very wonderful in that small size. And that'll go away with future generations of this camera and, and competitive cameras. Uh, but I think to photographers who are used to composing the world and seeing these little moments, and you know, this is really the way memory works, is these little snippets of time that we piece together in our brain. It's not really a, a static pictures that we store. Um, so it can resonate very deeply. And if you're a photographer or uh, you're into film, this is a, a very cool technique that anybody can do. Um, I bought this camera um, at uh, B&H for uh, $999.
So it's not that expensive. Um, you don't need any special software or anything. I saw some wonderful guesses about different software you might use to make something like this. Um, but you can just edit it together using anything. So this is uh, really available to everybody, and I would love to see what other people can make because I could watch this stuff all day long. I think it's fantastic. Now, Trey, where now what you, you mentioned you could use anything to edit this video together. What are you? What's your your video editing software of choice? Uh, well, should I be embarrassed to say that I used iMovie? No, absolutely not. <laughs> so yeah, I used iMovie, and I'm just now getting my feet wet in Final Cut Pro. Uh, but, uh, you know, really all you need is, uh, uh, some cuts and some fades and, and that's about it. You could probably put some nice filters on with some other tools. And I'm looking at that if you want to do some video filters, but that's not necessarily, uh, that important. Okay, great. We're getting some questions in the, in the chat room for you. Um, and I apologize to the folks that are listening that I don't have a P filter on this mic. I actually took it off. It is not the, the twit studios fault. It just, uh, uh, I took it off. I will leave it at that. Um, but some of the questions that are coming in, the first one that I see in here is, please ask Trey. This is from uh, Masa Media, uh, DE. says, please ask Trey is he, if he used a Steadicam a lot. Aha, that's a good question. Um, no. When I started doing this, I thought I would definitely need a Steadicam. And I've seen, um, it was either in Photo Dojo or one of these sites, how you can make a, a Steadicam really cheap out of some, you know, plumbing type parts. And I thought about having one of my friends make those. I'm not handy at all, but it turns out that you don't really need one. Um, for whatever reason, this 300 frames per second gets rid of camera shake, unless you're in a, just happen to have really bad uh, shake. You don't even notice it because you're panning the camera so quickly. Um, a lot of those shots, I'm in a car going by people or I'm in a train going by people. And you just don't get that much camera shake. And in fact, you don't even notice it because you're so busy looking at the subjects and the little micro movements. Um, it's camera shake, uh, but it's slowed down so much you don't even notice it. Now, you know, one of the shots that that, that I have stuck in my mind, uh, no, no pun intended on the stuck word, but one of the shots <laughs> that's stuck in my mind is you've got a shot of some uh, Japanese bicyclists. They're riding a bike down the middle of the street. Um, and you're panning by them, and it almost looks like this, the camera is panning in real time. So that that's kind of what, what screwed up my brain because I see it looks like the can the camera is actually moving by at a normal f rate of speed, but the bicyclists are s not moving. So this that's the piece that that kind of got me because it looks like they're stuck in motion. You know, they're stuck there, and uh, yeah, this shot right here. So they're stuck there. But everything else is moving properly. Now, you're saying that you just shot that at 300 frames per second. Yeah, this shot right here. So you shot this at 300 frames per second and then just slowed it down? Because something's, something's messing with my head in there. <laughs> no, it's shot at 300 frames per second and it's played back at 30 frames per second. So one second takes 10 seconds. Uh -huh. And that's, that's all there is to it. And there is, I'll tell you, you know, my my background is in, in math and computer science. And I'm, I'm always interested in in very interested in math and orders of magnitude. And there's something absolutely magical about 10 times slower than reality and something magical about 10 times faster than reality. When you see time lapse, it's exactly 10 times or slow motion, it's exactly 10 times. There's something very nice about this number that just makes some sort of natural 
sense and, and brings a, a certain amount of pleasure to, to some very weird level in your brain. Yeah. Now, Ron Brinkman, would you, uh, do you see yourself using this technique in any of your travels? Because I know you're the, uh, you and Joseph both are world-traveling photographers. Would you, would you use this in any of your journeys? Yeah, I mean, I don't shoot a whole lot of video when I travel, but it's, uh, and, and to be fair, this is, uh, well, it's kind of standard cinematography stuff, right? We've been shooting uh, high-speed uh, camera stuff for years, especially in the visual effects world, uh, and then and then slowing it down. But the fact that it's uh, uh, now available to the general public in some of these lower-cost cameras is is indeed pretty cool. And in fact, you can get a piece of this kind of a neat effect in that some of these uh, off-the-shelf cameras now that don't shoot 300 frames a second will shoot at 60 frames a second with the intention of just shooting uh, 60 frames per second. HD, but then you can easily in iMovie or even in QuickTime Pro choose to play it back at a slower frame rate at 30 or even 24 frames a second and, and get much of the same effect even if uh, you, you don't have a camera that has the ultra high speed mode. So yeah, you know, I, I mean, slow-mo is, is, a, is a great technique for sort of helping you to understand what's going on in a scene. Uh, and, and like you said, Fred, it's sort of almost counterintuitive sometimes what's going on there whenever you see footage that shot high speed and then and then played at a normal frame rate. Yeah, and Joseph, what about you? I know you're you're deep into the visual effects stuff, um, knowing Final Cut and and all those those high end applications. Would you use something like this say, on your on your next international junket? I think if they uh, put 300 frames per second into my 5D, then perhaps I would have a play with it. But um, I'm not going to go out and get the get the camera just to do it. But it, it's a cool effect. And I think that the great observation here is matching the kind of the one tenth speed to the ten times real time movement that gives you really interesting parallax there. I think that's that's part of what makes this really particularly compelling versus just standard slow motion footage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've got to applaud you, Trey, for. Uh, you know, I know, like Ron said, doing slow-mo stuff is not new, and you said it yourself, it's not new, but sort of incorporating slow-mo stills and just sort of putting everything together uh, with into one sort of cohesive package is, is nice. I mean, I think it's a, it's a nice way to, to get your – to emote your feelings of what you were seeing at that particular place in time to the viewer without just your standard burst of video. Hey, look, there's some girls playing jump rope and it's over slowing it down. Um, it helps people really appreciate what's happening there. So Trey, where can people, you said this is on your website again, give us the URL where they can go directly to it. Sure. It's stuck in customs.com slash stuck in motion. Excellent. Stuck in motion. All right. So let's, uh, let's move right along into the listener questions and, uh, this is going to be a free-for-all, so we're all going to be answering these questions. And, Trey, I know you're at a disadvantage because you have not seen these beforehand, but uh, we'll try to go easy on you. Uh, the first one is assigned to Ron Brinkman. Ron, you want to take this one away? Sure. Uh, listener Eamon Bell says, I'm about to go to your my partner for about a month. Part of the excitement of the trip for me is a chance to photograph amazing landmarks and scenes, but this is a holiday. And I will always be with my partner who does take the occasional photo with a point and shoot, but isn't as passionate about it as I am with photography. Do you have any tips on how to make the trip still feel like a holiday while taking a lot of photos? Um, yeah, I, I've certainly dealt with this myself. Uh, and there's sort of a variety of answers, none of them particularly definitive. But, yeah, you know, if you're, if you're with somebody who has no interest in taking photos and you are spending time to set up tripods and 
shoot uh, multiple angles of the Eiffel Tower or something like that, uh, there could be a little bit of friction coming out. I, I guess, you know, one thing I would suggest is try to get the person you're traveling with interested in photography at some level. Um, I tend to take more photos of uh, scenery kind of stuff and photos where I'm interested in composing things. But a lot of times I'll travel with somebody who's more interested and doing just a lot of capture the moment, getting the environment kind of stuff, and, and just being a, a lot more, I don't want to use the word snapshotty because it almost sounds denigrating, but just capturing a lot of the environment around there without really trying to get uh, well-composed photos. And if you can get the person you're traveling with kind of interested in that, it actually ends up being really nice when you come back after the after the trip and can kind of compare what was captured in the moment. And it's not at all uncommon for me to sort of feel like, boy, I'm really glad I have that picture because I remember that and I didn't take a picture of it. So it's great that somebody else did. Um, you know, the other thing is you're just going to have to be kind of a little bit lighter on your feet. Try to capture stuff. Don't, you know, set your camera settings so that you can shoot handheld as opposed to needing to set up a tripod. It's all about kind of coming up with some kind of compromise. All right, and I'm going to bounce this over to Trey, too, because as shown by the video that we, we played earlier, you've been around the world a couple times, so I'm sure you're not going alone on every trip. How do you, how do you manage this, the, the idea of, of engaging people that you're traveling with uh, in your photography? Well, I don't travel with people that don't like to take photos. I mean, that would be crazy. Why would you, why would you do that? You know, it's a beautiful world, and it's really fun to capture. Even if you're horrible at photography, it still can be fun. You know, I always equate photography to golf. Even if you're a, a, a horrible golfer, you'll still hit a good shot every now and then, and that'll keep you coming back to the course the next time. So I, I prefer to, you know, inspire those around me to take it up. It's a great hobby and uh, you'll get better at it over time. And I cannot conceive of a person that would not enjoy taking photos of a beautiful place. Awesome. Great answer. Joseph, I know you, you travel <laughs> with people from time to time. Uh, do you just do you do you shove your traveling partners off into a corner while you go shoot, or do you engage them? No, absolutely not. It's um, actually I have a, quite a few things to kind of throw into this uh, this question. Um, one of the first things I'd say is travel light, right? Do not grab your tripod. Do not take take five lenses with you. Because if you do that, then your partner's definitely going to be looking at you cross-eyed and thinking, "Man, this is you know this is not going to be any fun for me." So if you can just go with one lens, just use the one lens, maybe have a second one with you for particular shots, but really just try and travel light. But I think the most important thing is, is to include them in the photographs. If you're going to go to, let's say you're going to Paris for the first time, it's obviously your first inclination is, oh, I have to get a picture of the Eiffel Tower and I have to get a picture of the, the Seine. And, but if it's just a picture like that, you know, if you want to see the Eiffel Tower, Google it. There's a bajillion pictures out there. Get pictures of the person that you're with involved get them you know in pictures at, at a cute cafe get them um, you know take pictures of them shopping take pictures of them doing the things that they want to do and you're going to find that your travel photos are going to be much more interesting much more memorable for everybody that's a really yeah. good point joseph is, is you do see people shy about taking photos of other people and uh, i think it's very very smart to uh to engage those around you and those in your vicinity that are interesting and take pictures of them because I have, uh, you know, great photos that I come back with and I get just as big of a kick out of the, the big ones as the, as the people ones. And, you know, don't be afraid to take pictures of people. That's, uh, sure. that's something that everyone can, can get into. Once you get over that fear, a whole new world opens up. Yep. And then also don't be afraid to put your camera into your partner's hand, you know, let her get some pictures of, you know, her or him get some pictures of you. Um, 
uh, you know, get some together shots, balance the camera on a table and do a little, uh, you know, self timer and have some fun with it. But just don't forget the photography is fun. And if you make it fun for the person you're with, then they're not going to resent you for carrying that camera everywhere. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I would say that's that's probably one of the issues that I have of all the thousands and thousands of photos that I have from taken around from places that I visit. I'm in very few of them, maybe, uh, you know, under a dozen that I'm actually in because I don't hand a camera over. So that's a great piece of advice, Joseph. Um, You know, it's kind of funny is now with, uh, with my girlfriend now, whenever I, uh, whenever I'm out with her now, it's almost standard now that she picks up the big camera. She wants to take the the 5D or the Mark III before just going for a walk in some new city. And I'll just, I'll just want to travel with my little camera, a little EP1 and want something lightweight, but she wants to take the big one now. So it's kind of funny. Now I'm finally getting pictures of me with the good camera. It's kind of nice. <laughs> That's awesome. I think you. I think I know what's going to be on your your Christmas shopping list, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next question is uh, for all of us. Actually, this is from listener Michael Green. He says, "I shoot portraits and landscapes. I'm new to uh, to the digital SLR and I have a Nikon D60 as my intro, entry level camera." My question is, what are the top three lenses that I should most need in my kit? Think bang for the buck. Ron Brinkman, you want to take the first crack at this? Well, he's specifically asking about Nikon, so I'm not going to be uh, too up to speed on specific lens models. But I'd say any photographer should have an extremely fast, probably 50 millimeter prime uh, sitting in their bag. You know, something they can do 1.8 or even 1.4 you know, the 1.8 is really a sweet spot for these lenses. You can get them, I know, for Nikon as well as Canons and probably most other manufacturers for well under $100. You'd be crazy not to have that. Uh, but in terms of other lens models, I'll let somebody like yourself, Frederick, who's uh, familiar with Nikon lenses, answer a little bit more. Well, I'll tell you the, the three lenses that I, I typically throw in my bag if I'm, if I'm just trying to cover all bases. Uh, the the lens that stays on my camera 90% of the time is my 50 millimeter 1.4 that I'm very happy with because I'm a fan of a very shallow depth of field. And I, I depending on the topic or the subject, obviously, I'll shoot that thing wide open because I really like, um, I like to, to focus on the subject. Um, but also in my bag, I have a 14 to 24 uh, and I also have a 70 to 200 that I keep in there around that 50. And sometimes I'll take the 24 to 70 as well to fill in that gap in between. But those four lenses are the ones that I, I typically carry around. If I had to just take one lens um, or if I only had a couple hundred bucks and I had to buy one lens for my camera, I think right now um, it would be the 51.4 because it's a, it's a good standard lens. It's fast enough. Uh, and you can get some amazingly beautiful shots with it. So that would be my advice. Trey Radcliffe, what about you? Uh, well, Ron and Fred, you're spot on with that 50-millimeter prime. That can make a, a rookie look like a pro in a second. It's a fantastic lens. Stop giving away my secret. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no offense there, Fred. Uh, and uh, uh, now I think he might have mentioned in particular landscape photography in his letter. I would um, now. I have the same lens as you, uh, Fred. That Nikon fourteen to twenty-four. It's great. It's it's a little pricey. Um, what I had before was cheaper and extremely serviceable. It was the Sigma ten to twenty. Mm. It's probably about half the cost, and it is a great lens. Some of my best uh, shots are with that lens. I think it's great. And then um, I also recommend taking the uh, the twenty-four to seventy lens because in a lot of vistas where you're setting up um 
you don't want something too wide because you're going to lose all all the details of the vista yeah. um so that 24 to 70 comes in handy as well okay and uh, one follow-up question on that, Trey. I know you you are one of the guys that, that carry around your tripod everywhere you go because you're doing a lot of that HDR stuff. But do you find yourself leaning more towards prime lenses or are, are you okay with the zoom lenses? Well, when you are on a tripod, you don't have to worry about what f-stop you're shooting at. So you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, shooting wide open to get a quick shutter speed. Uh so you don't really have to worry about, uh, like one of the great things about that Nikon 14 to 24 is it's a 2.8 lens, which means it's very speedy. Now the Sigma lens, which is 10 to 20, I think it bottoms out at about 4.5. And that's just fine when you're on a tripod. You don't have to worry about your shutter speed. You're in, you're in good shape with that Sigma. Yeah. And Joseph, what's, uh, what are your three favorites that are stuck in your bag all the time? Um, well, if I was going to throw out three necessary ones, is pretty much what you guys have said. There's the 2470, 70 to 200, and then the fixed 50. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit spoiled. I got the 51.2, which is a glorious lens. This is on the Canon, of course. Um, it's absolutely glorious lens. And but you could I you could probably... buy a car with what that lens costs. A <laughs> <laughs> used car. Come on. Um, that now that lens is absolutely fantastic. And actually, in talking about what lenses to take with you when you're traveling. Um, I did a kind of a self-experiment a while ago where I traveled on an a international trip, you know, for vacation, but I carried only that lens, only the 50 mil. It's all I brought with me. It was a case of, let's see if I can do this, kind of a bit of a re-education and force myself into this one single fixed lens. No zooms, no telephotos, no, uh, no way to get closer or farther back except to move my feet. And it was a great experience, and I'm very, very happy with the pictures I got back. And there's only once or twice where I thought, you know, it'd be nice to have a longer, wider lens. But frankly, I got over it. Uh, for yeah. being able to, to travel that light was was really something special. So yeah, absolutely. I, I know some wedding photographers that will shoot 90 percent of a, a wedding event with a 50 millimeter one four lens, only switching to uh, another lens like uh, the zoom if they you know need to get in tight and can't really get in the face when they're we're actually exchanging vows um, right. or when they're doing wide, you know, the group shots and all that, of course you need a wider angle lens for that. But other than that, the, the 51 four stays on for everything else, which is, I think in a lot of ways, like you say, Joseph, it's liberating to restrict yourself to just one focal length. Cause you know what you're going to get as soon as you put that camera in front of your face, your brain is already wired to know what you're going to see. So you can, you can conceptualize images just looking around after a while with from you know what you're going to get when you snap that shutter before you sure. even snap it. So I think I think just starting for especially for beginners and and even some seasoned experts like Ron Brinkman um a 50 millimeter 14 uh or 1.2 if you if you have Joseph money uh is a, is probably <laughs> the way <laughs> is the way to go. Um it's, let's take one more question guys. Uh this one's really interesting. It's also a group discussion. It's from Samuel Gonzalez, and he says, hello, I'm a big fan of your show. Um, he's, he's, he's always been shooting with Pentax for more than 10 years. He, he loves every one of the models purchased through the years. He owns a K20 and a K7. They're very good cameras, and he's accustomed to them. And he doesn't think he's going to change to Nikon or Canon, um, and it's been a brand that's been around. It's strong and stable. He wants to know, uh, is 
should you know what's wrong with Pentax? Basically, is what he's asking. <laughs> you know, every we always talk about Nikon or Canon, and very rarely do we mention anybody else. Even Sony, uh, for example, who has some really strong uh, bodies and glass out in the market right now. So I'll I'll throw it to Brinkman first, Ron. What's uh what's wrong with Pentax? Nothing wrong with Pentax. I, my first camera was a Pentax, and I shot it for a number of years. Uh, you know, part of this is just the fact that. Uh, we are trying to reach as broad an audience as possible, and between Nikon and Canon, I think they've, uh, you know, they're still the, we've done surveys on this, and they're still the bulk of our listeners. Uh, you know, for me, the the reason why I probably would not get a Pentax is primarily due to the low light sensitivity. I have not seen, maybe with the exception of uh, Sony, but really Canon and Nikon still dominate the ability to get cameras that have extremely good. You know, high ISO, low light capabilities. So for me, that's sort of the the starting point for when I'm considering a camera. What does the sensor do? Uh, but you know, beyond that, I, I don't I don't think we have an inherent bias against against Pentax so much as it's just kind of what's the the more popular brands out there. All right, and uh, hey Trey, what what do you have against Pentax? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna BS you guys. I have no idea about Pentax. I feel I feel very ill-equipped to answer this question. I don't know. <laughs> All right, awesome. Fair enough. Joseph, you have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, there's nothing against Pentax for sure. I just don't have any experience with it like Trey and, and Ron. It sounds like we just aren't used to shooting it. You know, we, we talk about what we shoot. We talk what we know. And the majority, vast majority of the pros out there are using either Canon or Nikon. Now, there's, there's no arguing that. It doesn't mean that Pentax isn't good. I'm sure Pentax is a great camera. Um, it's just not the most popular one. It's not what we're using. So it's, you know, a lot of people put so much focus on the gear. Oh, I have the latest Canon. I have the latest Nikon. I have the latest whatever. And, and that makes me a better photographer. You know, BS. It does, has nothing to do with it. You know, you put a, a 1DS Mark III in the hand of an amateur and an iPhone in the hand of a pro. Guess who's going to get the better pictures? It has yeah. nothing to do with the gear. So I agree. And I, I've said that before as well. I think uh, for a lot of beginners, it's, it's an excuse, I mean, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. It's an, having having really expensive gear is you know, especially you're you're looking at your the people whose work you admire, and you look at what they shoot, the gear that they shoot with. So automatically, you're going to assume that oh, in order for me to get shots like Trey Ratcliffe or like Ron Brinkman, I need to get the stuff that they have, and then I can start getting those kinds of shots. When in fact, it's not true. You can get some some really good shots, even superior shots with equipment that's inferior to what you know and holding up quote fingers inferior to what the uh what the pros use all right so yeah i think you're you're absolutely spot on joseph what what you shoot with is is secondary to having knowledge of photography including light uh exposure composition all that stuff if you have your brain around how that stuff works then the gear that you use to capture it and to execute the vision that you have in your mind's eye uh is is pretty much secondary so right exactly that's where i would leave that okay now guys it's uh we're coming to the close here it's time to get the picks of the week out of the way trey i'm gonna let you go last because um i don't know if you have one so i'm gonna give you time to search the web for your pick of the week (laughs) we're gonna kick it off with ron brinkman ron what's your pick of the week uh, this is just a quickie uh, suggested by, by my friend Julie Rivolo uh, that you know, Wikimedia, Wikimedia Commons put out a, uh, a picture of the day. And it's kind of interesting in that it's sort of community voted on. And the thing I like about it is that it's not necessarily always trying to be the most beautiful photo so much as just being interesting photos. Uh, and sometimes it's, they're actually kind of random. 
But uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's just commons.wikimedia.org slash wiki slash picture of the day. Uh, and, you know, you can sign up for RSS feed or have email sent to you on it. And it's just kind of fun to see what random picture pops up every morning. Wow. Awesome. Great tip. All right, Joseph, what's your, what's your pick of the week? So my pick of the week is a piece of cheap black felt from the fabric store. So a couple awesome. weeks ago, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, um, you're just I, trying to make up for that, that, uh, suggestion that people buy that 51, four, <laughs> <laughs> one, two, <laughs> one, two. Sorry. Yeah. Um, exactly. With all the money you save buying black felt. Now, uh, so a couple weeks ago, actually for Halloween, I set up a little mini studio in my front yard. And did pictures of the kids that came by, whose uh, whose parents were with them and permitted it, obviously. That's awesome. And to do this, I knew that I was going to get some big groups in there, and I needed a. I wanted just a solid black background. And I went to the the down to the local Sammies here to see what they had. And to buy a good black canvas background, um, I think it was almost two hundred dollars for something that was only four by six feet, and that wasn't going to be big enough. And so it was my girlfriend actually that suggested, why don't we just go to the fabric store? And went in, and I was able to buy. Let's see, it was three yards wide, and then bought, it's on a roll. So I got three by 12 yards, I think, of black felt for $15. Wow. And it's just unbelievably cheap. Now, it's not completely light absorptive, right? It's, it's not like that black hole in a bag that I know you have, Frederick. That, that thing is amazing. Um, but, you know, properly used, keep the light away from it, put it a little bit far back, and the background disappeared. It was a pure black background, and I got it for cheap, cheap, cheap. And I didn't have to worry about kids stepping on it all day and ruining it because, you know, if I can't clean it, 15 bucks goes in the bin. No big deal. Awesome. That is, that is a, it's an awesome pick. You know, every, every time this show rolls around in the morning, I'm like, what the hell am I going to pick? And I try to, like, kind of go through my camera bag and, you know, what am I using? Is there something I haven't mentioned? And as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, crap, I wish I'd have thought of that because I, <laughs> I have a piece of black velvet that I've had for years. Same thing, bought it at the fabric store, and I've used it so many times, you know, even as – like a light absorbing wall to take out uh, ambient light reflections on something. Yeah. Um, if you want to do some isolated product photography and you, you know you want everything in the background to go black, uh, it's incredibly useful. It is really you know good how much light absorbing it is as long as you don't hit the hit the fabric at a certain angle and get the kind of sheen off of it. And the only other suggestion I would make to go along with that is get yourself a lint brush because it does pick up lint really easily. But if you right before you shoot, run a, a lint brush over it real quick. Um, it's really, really black, and it's incredibly useful. That's a great tip. I, I, you know, Joseph, like you mentioned, I do have some of that that photographic black light absorbent material, and that stuff is expensive. I mean, it is it is really expensive, and you know, it tends, of course, it's it attracts every little bit of of white lint or hair or whatever that's when it was within its proximity. So it is like that black hole. It's sucking everything onto it, which means you have to retouch it out later. So yeah, I, I really wish that before I spent all that money on that thing that I would have uh, heard your tip of the week or your pick of the week. <laughs> all right, Trey Radcliffe, I've given you enough time. It is time right, for your pick. <laughs> Don't worry about it. This is going to be awesome. All right. Uh, so actually, I sent this out on Twitter. I always try to find cool, inspirational stuff and tweet it out a few times a day. And this is one of these things. It is awesome. Um, now, this guy is described as this Japanese guy that was born in 1859. He's described as an enigmatic photographer, which is automatically cool in my book. And his name is T. Anami. And he did these animated stereo views in old Japan. Now, uh, the, you can Google it, animated stereo views of old Japan. Um, 
or I'll send you a link. And the way it works is uh, uh, I suggest you, you zoom in. If you have a Mac, you can use control and, and the, the mouse wheel to zoom in and scroll down. And this guy would take uh, uh, two photos at the same time, kind of separated. And uh, you could look at them sort of like with an old Japanese uh, viewfinder type thing. And anyway, these have been animated back and forth. And to me, they are just mesmerizing to look at. Mm -hmm. And if you scroll down far enough, um, you can see a bunch of uh, geisha girls that are sitting there uh, using the same device with a whole pile of these uh, stereograms on the ground that they're going through one after another. And it's just, it's just a, uh, a really cool, I feel like I'm, I'm time traveling or something when I look at these. They're just awesome. That's really cool. That's an excellent pick. We're showing some of those on the screen now, and uh, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So and you uh, should, uh, just to toss out one quick thing, I, uh, uh, I actually took one of those stereogram photos a, a while back. This is my blog, digitalcomposting.com. You'll have to scroll back and find it. Uh, but instead of just doing the flip back and forth animation, I, I used some uh, slightly more expensive tools to kind of do this in-betweening uh, optical flow technology so the camera sort of pans back and forth between the two and it's, oh, it's cool. actually That's a pretty, good idea. pretty effective looking it's pretty cool so yeah go go check out digitalcomposting.com uh, and uh, it's it's a ways back probably about a year ago i did that yeah i remember that post run awesome all right and my pick of the week is from lexar they uh i think it was at photo plus expo a couple of weeks ago they released or announced their new 32 gigabyte 60x platinum sdhc uh cd card or uh compact flash card so that thing uh 32 gigs you know i i, I recently made the jump from just using your regular old 8 gigabyte cards in, in the d3 and the d3 or in the d700 to using the big old 16 gigabyte cards. And that was a scary leap for me because I'm, you know, I was scared to put all my eggs in one basket. What if you're out shooting something and it fails? But, you know, I put the request out on Twitter. How many people have had one of these cards fail, whether it's Lexar or any of the other brands? And, um, you know, very few people came back saying that they actually had card failures. There were some, but very few people said that. So I'm jumping in with both feet and buying the biggest cards I can buy when the price comes down a little bit, of course. So the next one is this 32 gigabyte 60x uh, Lexar Platinum SDHC card. So I saw a demo from um, one of the Lexar guys at uh, at Photo Plus, and you basically even when shooting with a with a, a Canon, you know, one of the one of the the, the larger Canons, you can't. It wouldn't fill up. You know, the the fast. You know, you could shoot it on high speed, and it wouldn't buffer meaning the 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 transfer from the camera's buffer to the card was fast enough so you just keep shooting as fast as you want until the card itself filled up so which is you know you're you're basically ahead of the game at that point so with two of those in a d3 or one of them in a d700 i think i'll be styling so that's my tip head over to lexar.com and uh check it out very cool and that's it. So uh, that brings us to a close of this show. Quickly, uh, Ron Brinkman, where can people find you if they're looking for you? Other uh, than my blog, I'm on the Twitters, just Ron Brinkman. Awesome. And say that with a little less enthusiasm next time. <laughs> <laughs> I am on the Twitters. <laughs> there you go. Come on. Let's try it again from the top. Where can people find you, Ron Brinkman? <laughs> R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. Awesome. All right. Joseph Lenashki, where can people find you online? Well, since no one can spell my last name, it's easiest to go to my blog, confessionsofatraveljunkie.com, or on the Twitters at travel underscore junkie. Perfect. All right. And Mr. Trey Radcliffe, where can people find you online? 
Um, on Twitter, I'm twitter.com slash Trey Ratcliffe. And you guys have said my website so much, I don't think I could bear to say it again. So just, <laughs> just Google me. It's fine. <laughs> Stuckincustoms.com. Definitely. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on my blog at frederickvan.com or on Twitter under the same name, twitter.com forward slash frederickvan. And with that, that brings us to an end of this episode of This Week in Photography. Thanks for listening and or watching. It's time to take that lens cap off. Thank you.